This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in, but let's jump in and see what we got. First up on Patreon, The Dressing Gown wants to know what features I would like to see added to the RetroTank 4K. And this is a happy question. It's not like a, this thing's missing a feature type of question. It's all positive nerd conversation of what I would like to see. And this is, uh, I could answer this in two different ways. I could answer it in a very unrealistic way, as well as uh, what I think could potentially be added. So I'm going to answer both. What I would like is for the RetroTank 4K to magically support 4K60 input and 4K120 output. Now that's not going to happen. That would require a complete board design that is a wildly different product that would be far, far more expensive. So right off the bat, that's something that I would love to see that's just not going to happen. That's a $2,000 scaler. And by the way, just a, a very quick aside, very often in retro gaming, people scoff when they hear prices as ridiculous and high as $100 for the RetroTink 2K. And it's kind of funny because if you go into the high-end home automation, uh, home home theater world, you very often hear people talking about like, oh, that new Lumigen processor is only $7,000. It's cheaper than the last model. And it's, so everything's relative, right? But, um, you know, I don't think that's a product that people would buy today. I don't think a lot of people would spend two grand on a scaler for retro gaming. So, or, or even for modern gaming to take other stuff like that. I, and I think Mike made the right decision sticking to the hardware format that he did. So stuff like that, you know, ridiculous stuff like direct uncompressed 4K capture to the SD card, you know, like there's a bunch of ridiculous stuff I would love to see that's just not possible with that hardware and the hardware was the right choice. But stuff that is at least theoretically possible, I don't know if that's something something that's on Mike's radar. Uh, I'm not sure how far he's getting with it. The first thing I would like to see is any kind of smoothing and real smoothing, not, you know, not just a soft filter like with the, with some of the other products you see, which is fine, by the way, because that soft filter works really well for certain things, especially if you're doing stuff like trying to scale VHS or Laserdisc or even DVD, depending on what your target device is. So I'm not knocking the soft scaling. It is different than what you would find on a TV, but I'm, I would love to see actual real smoothing because early 3D graphics would really benefit from it. And I truly think stuff like 480p and 720p graphics would benefit from it on a 4K TV. Now, uh, the other stuff that I would love to see is more VHS and Laserdisc related. And while this isn't a huge part of my personal use for it, I do see the need for this because of how many people in those areas still need help. Anybody that's been following the VHS capture streams I've done has seen that there's no one cheap product that you could just buy to capture this stuff. 
So it is really looking like using a Tink 5X or 4K to transfer to digital could be the perfect option for some people, not all. So I would love to see things like some, uh, some less dropouts on VHS because VHS is a very lossy format. So basically like a time-based correction mode. Um, I would love to see, uh, even if it's not perfect, a three comb filter for video added because you don't really need that for video games for the, you know, for the way that we use composite video, it's not going to make as big of a difference as it would for transferring analog 480i over to digital. So stuff like that I would like to see. And there's a couple of little tweaky things that I want, but it's really just the, anything extra is for my personal setup. And a lot of it could be done right now with custom mode lines and stuff like that. So at the moment, that's really it. As far as realistic features go, um, I would love to just see more VHS and Laserdisc focused stuff in smooth focused stuff in smoothing. And, you know, I would love to see, you know, five, 10 years from now, whatever else, the follow-up product have uh, just the next generation of hardware. And by that time, when we're all using 8K 240 TVs or something like that, then it would really make sense to use that higher end hardware, which should have con come down in price by then. So hopefully that kind of, that's a, a fun little overview. But yeah, it's, I wanted to give a little more explanation because it would be, I didn't want to be disingenuous and be like, I want 8K support because that's just that's not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that answered your question well. But I, I love it. I think it's worth every penny if the features are something you would use. I just know so many people that bought a Tink 5X and they love it and they don't need anything else. And they ask my opinions and I tell them honestly, with all the love and respect to Mike, keep the 5X. There's no reason for your particular setup to upgrade. But a lot of people want the 4K because it's just, it is pretty killer. Next up, Brian Greenslate said, they saw me mention the discovery of the Satellaview version of F-Zero. They have a Satellaview with the save cartridge. They've been unable to access to see if they have a missing part of that F-Zero game. Can I direct them to someone or a website with instructions on how to do so? Uh, I would definitely check out that Did You Know Gaming video and reach out to them, reach out to the people that they worked with. I would not reach out to any of those publications that stole all of the info from the Do You Know Game, Did You Know Gaming video, didn't credit them at all. Uh, yeah, that was gross to see that happen. Um, so many people just watched the video, wrote down what they said, and made it seem like there was their research. So skip those frauds, go right to the source and go from there. And if for whatever reason you can't get through to anybody, please just contact contact me, DM me, whatever, and I'll, I'll see if I could kick down some doors for you, because if you do happen to have that extra info on there, that would be really awesome. And if not, who knows what you might find on there. So yeah, try reaching out and see, and if not, let me know. Captain Retro has a question about Extron Crosspoint Matrix Switchers and their sync inputs and outputs. And I'm not sure I know the answer to this one because I've never used a model exactly like the one you're describing, but I'm going to run through it anyway because maybe somebody else listening could help as well. They have a 12 by 8 Crosspoint and only the first four inputs and first four outputs have the option to switch to 75 ohm non-TTL sync. Does that limit them to the first four inputs for proper RGBS, or are they good as long as the output is 75 ohm? So I'm going to do some guessing here, but I'm going to guess on the safe side of things. So the worst thing that could happen, I'm pretty sure, is nothing, which is not really a bad thing. I'm pretty sure those switches, um, is if they're not there, it just runs in TTL mode. So as long as you have sync that is TTL level, so pure C-sync at a higher voltage, running to the inputs 
And as long as you have a BNC discard adapter on the output side that, that requires that 470-ohm-ish, give or take, resistor, then you should be fine. If I'm wrong about this, and if it's sending too low sync for that resistor, you won't sync on your target, which is fine. That's not going to break anything. Don't leave it running for hours without sync connected. But if you turn it on and the screen goes crazy, then you know that's what the issue is. So it's a, this is one of the rare moments where it should be completely safe to just give it a try. I would never do the opposite. I would never hook just a plain BNC discard cable without a resistor and just say, okay, let's see if this works. If it doesn't, you could blow out your SCART equipment. So I think this is one of those rare cases where you could just give it a try and see as long as your cables are built properly and it should just work fine for you. But if anybody knows for sure what the what the deal is with those switches, please let us know. Um, I'd like to know that just for questions like this when people ask. But this is one of those things where I think you're good to go. And the other cool thing you could do is as long as you have on the output side, the resistor on the sync line, if uh, one output doesn't work, you could switch to another output that doesn't have the switches and see if it does and go from there. And if you have any doubts about any of this, you could just get that cheap scope that I did a, a video on. I think delivered, it's under 40 bucks. And I think with the probe, you should just be able to open up the SCART lead and test go on the input and output side. It should be fairly easy. Um, if you've never done anything like that before, it's going to be kind of frustrating at first, but all of a sudden it's just going to click and you're going to go, oh, all right. And yeah, a $40 scope is not something that I would use to design a product around, but if you put your pins on there and you see 650 millivolts and you put the pins on there and you see two volts, even if it's off by a couple of percent, you know right away which one you're going for. So uh, going into SCART equipment, you always want under a volt probably over 250 millivolts. And uh, on the input side to the cross point, um, just basically any pure C-Sync should work. You might need some kind of voltage boost, but you should be fine on the input side. So I'll leave a link to that scope video if you're interested, but I think this one should be pretty easy for you. Next up, Richard Kingston has a setup that's mostly RGB going into a G-SCART switch, outputting one output to the OSSC and another output to a CRT. And they want to know how to integrate one other console that's not RGB into it, whether it's composite or S-Video. And that one's kind of tricky because there aren't any RGB, or composite to RGB or S-Video to RGB converters out there that I know of. There's converters that go to component video like the CoreU, but not RGB. So this is where things, this is where price really starts to step in. What model N64 do you have? If you're in, you said you're in Ireland, so I'm assuming you have a PAL N64 that requires the advanced mod, so things could get pretty expensive. Let's just stop for a minute and say maybe you have an early Japanese model that could use a cheap RGB mod. That would absolutely be the way to go. It's going to be cheaper overall. Just do that, get yourself an RGB cable, and you're done. But assuming you have a PAL that requires the advanced one, Maybe doing something like getting a Rad 2X or getting a RetroTank and then getting an HDMI to VGA converter and an HD15 to SCART, that might actually be cheaper. And it sounds ridiculous because you're like, all right, HD15 to SCART's like 20 bucks or something. You got to get a, a, that one of those converters, which you can get for like eight bucks, so eight, 10 bucks. And then you have to get this, uh, the scaler. So that's Rad 2X or a tank or something like that. So you could be looking at 150 bucks here, which is a lot of money, 
but that might actually still be cheaper than trying to do a mod. And what if you have a bunch of N64s and you sometimes want to pull out your Pikachu, your Fantastic, whatever else, or what if you have a couple and one dies, you know, which it doesn't happen often, but then you have to remod it, you have to transfer everything over. So the big picture, you know, take a step back view, getting a Rad 2X and then an HDMI to VGA converter plugged into the HD15 to SCART might actually do exactly what you need to do. And I don't think there's any light gun games on the N64. So while it's a zero latency solution, it's actually technically like a few microseconds off. So light gun games, if you were to plug that into like a SNES, probably wouldn't work. But uh, but that's not an issue with the N64. So I would really just look at your overall total solution and see where you want to go with this. I do really wish there was just a basic you know, composite in this video to RGB converter for this exact reason, but I don't think there is one. And the few times I've looked into it with some friends, they were all basically like, the best way to do this is the same way the core is doing it, and they're not going to redo all that. So I'm sorry that I don't have any other ideas for you. Um, you, uh, I mean, you could look into trying to make something yourself, but at that point, then you're just better off modding the console. So if anybody else has any thoughts, please let me know. But I think this is just one of those scenarios where there's no perfect solution. There's just a couple of, of good ones. Or I mean, I guess RGB modding the N64 is pretty darn close to perfect, but that might cost you more. So it's up to you. Let me know what you decide, though. I'd be interested to see how your setup finalizes out. Next up, Dark Roast Chris has a VCR that they want to route through their component video setup into their RetroTINK 4K. So they tried running it through a CoreU transcoder. And they're getting some weird issues. And one of the weirdest is that the TINK 4K is reading the signal as 240p, even though it's obviously a 480i signal. So I would definitely not do this for a couple of reasons. First, the comb filter that's on the Tink 4K is very good, and I don't know if there's any filtering at all on the CoreU or, or what's the limit of its filtering. So you're almost surely going to be able to get a better signal going directly into the Tink 4K. And remember, if you just want to route your wires nicely and you don't want anything in front, you could use Greg's adapter that he just released. Uh, but to continue on this, also the Core U was definitely designed for video games in mind. And I've used it a few times to try and route things like a VHS into a BVM that didn't have uh, composite video inputs, because that was one of the reasons in the Core U video I did that one of the reasons why you might want it is maybe your BVM doesn't have a composite video card that might very well be cheaper to use. Um, and it was fine, but there was something off about it. It wasn't perfect. It was definitely different. And I tried the different brightness settings and anything like that. And I kind of asked around and most people were just like, I don't know, I just use it for video games. So I think that's probably the, the best way to go about doing this. Also, your other question, would a VCR that outputs S-Video really be that much of an improvement over composite to justify hunting one down? Totally depends on what your use case is. If you have a stack of old VHS tapes that you're like, oh, I remember watching these when I was a kid. I'd love to watch it again through the Tink 4K with a CRT filter and maybe watch it once and never again. No, use the, you know, use the Tink 4K. Uh, its um, comb filter does a very good job. And at least VHS is a lossy format. So, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. But if you're like, hey, I found these tapes of my family members that have passed away and I am the only person with video of them. Yeah, 
definitely go hunt down an S-Video VHS player. And, you know, uh, I'm still working on that VHS capture thing, but there's a couple of ways to do it where you're going to get a very good image anyway. But, I mean, that going through the Tink 4K is absolutely a, a good way to do it. Um, even if you capture in compressed 4K, the way I'm going to oversimplify, and if my fellow really smart nerds are listening, please be pedantic about this. I would love to hear a more detailed explanation. But basically, if you do something like you capture 480i direct or 480p direct, and even if you capture it uncompressed, and then you scale that up and then recompress it, I found less artifacts than if you just send 4K uncompressed, which that's what you get out of a Tink 4K, just uncompressed 4K signal to a capture card, like an Avermedia Live Gamer 4K, and just use Rec Central to record in compressed 4K, I see less compression artifacts that way. Now, my very smart friends might be about to, to whip out their keyboard and start typing. Well, that's because you're an idiot, and this is why, and that's fine. Bring it on, please. I want to learn more about this. But you know, if you're transferring your tapes and you want to archive it for you, going through a decent, not a thousand dollar VCR, like a hundred dollar VCR with S video output into the Tink 4K, you know, set the, um, set the filter to soft, not sharp scaling. You might want to use Lanzos. I can never say that word. The L one Lanzos, Lanzos two or three, and just kind of watch a few minutes of it. See what looks best to your eyes on a nice big TV and then capture that way. And that would be for the moment that if you already own a Tink 4K, I think you're going to get a great transfer. Now, this is just oversimplifying what's probably going to be an hour-long video on VHS capture. So <laughs> there's, there's way more to it than that. But to, to answer your question in a different way, if you just want this as a casual way to throw on a VHS tape, your composite output's more than enough. But if you're really looking to, uh, to get serious about this, or if you have VHS tapes that mean a lot to you, or, you know, if sometimes certain things just kind of feel better in that overly lossy format on a CRT. So if you get a, a Tink 4K, you get those CRT filters. You know, if it's important to you, get that S-Video VHS player. And all VHS is encoded with separate Chroma and Luma. I got this wrong for years until a couple of people straightened me out and said, no, even those home video recorders, you know, they're not the highest quality, neither is VHS anyway, but they are encoded separately. So you do definitely get a better picture. How noticeable, that's going to be up to you. But if it's important, get it. And if not, I personally wouldn't. I would just say, hey, I'm going to use these old tapes through this thing and have some fun. But let me know if you want me to clarify any more. And I, I'm still working on that VHS video, but it's going to be months before I'm finished. I'm lucky enough to have a few friends who are helping me through this, but it's, uh, whatever you think you know about VHS capture, if you think you're an expert, you're probably not. And I'm not being a dick. I'm saying there's way more to this than most people have ever imagined. Even me, who's been doing this stuff since 2000, 2001. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a doozy. Next up, Dr. Claw has a question, but I can't properly answer it unless I know the target device. Maybe I'm, I'm just half asleep and skipped over it. I apologize if that's the case, but I did read your question twice, and I don't know what you're going to. Are you going to a scaler? Are you going to a CRT? Um, what type of CRT? What type of scaler? That's what I would need to answer this question. But basically, they have an all-SCART setup, and they're looking to send a component video signal out. And they have an RGB to comp, and that seems to work fine for Dreamcast in 480p mode. 
but not PS2 in 480p, and they're running it through a GSCAR, so it converts RGSB to RGBS. And uh, the most trouble it looks like they're having with 480i on PS2. So I'm not really sure what the issue could possibly be in that setup, because that that could there could be a few things going on, but your target device is really going to be the key here. Because if you said you're using this converter and you're going to a consumer CRT and an OSSC, and both of those are having issues, that would be very strange. But if only one was, then we could we could track that down. Part of the question was, have I ever used the LinuxBot 3000 Wakaba Video SCART to uh, YPVPR converter? And I can't remember if I have, but I've tested a whole bunch of Jams products. They were all very good. So, um, you know, I, I can't say that I did a deep dive, but I also can say that I, I don't expect that to have any major issues. So if just swapping that, uh, the RGB to comp out with that one might be a good troubleshooting point. Uh, you mentioned that you keep a lot of tools in your toolbox like I do. So even if you don't need one, maybe that's something that you might want as a spare anyway, because I know, especially when I'm making retro RGB videos and doing stuff, I have to go and take my RGB to comp out of the existing setup to go bring it to go test something. So having a second laying around for stuff like that would be very helpful for me. So if you're a tinkerer like I am, maybe just pick one up and, and see. But um, we could dig deeper into this. You just got to let me know the total chain and what you're going into, and then we could try to figure out where the issues are from there. Next up, DemonKu has a PVM that needs to be manually powered on and off with the front switch. They were wondering if having a smart switch would be a good idea, or would there be concerns with cutting power from that smart switch instead of the designated power switch on the TV? So I'm going to give you two answers. First, from a technical point of view, I don't think that there would be any issues, but I personally would not do that. And even if a power expert like Renee came here to explain to me that I'm a moron and there's no reason to worry about it, it's the same thing, I still wouldn't do it. <laughs> I trust Renee, of course, but I just... I have issues with power because I've been burned metaphorically and literally quite a few times when I, I mishandled power. So for something like that, I personally would just use the switch that was built in. I, I still have power strips hooked up to mine. I don't use smart ones, but just uh, I turn the monitor on and off first. Or, you know, So if I'm using it, I'll turn it off. Then I'll go and kill the power behind it. And then when I go to use it, I turn on the power switch behind it first then I power on the monitor with its switch. It's probably OCD, it's probably paranoia, I probably don't need to, but if you've spent a lot of money on a PVM, especially if you've had one recapped and calibrated, I just think this is one of those things that just think of it as part of the experience. But once again, tell me if you think I'm wrong, and even, you know, I'm okay being irrational. Even if you show me irrefutable proof that that doesn't matter, I'm still doing it this way because I don't want to ruin the, the PVMs that I have. But that's just my opinion, and I just you know always want to be open and honest, even if, uh, even if I'm wrong. Next up, Renaissance 2K has a Windows 98-era PC hooked up to a standard VGA monitor, which looks great, but it's small. They've been looking for ways to connect it to their Sony D24, but the image quality has been varying degrees of awful. Sync curl, blur, messed up colors, etc., no matter what they try. So... Here's an interesting setup, because first of all, with the D-series BVMs, you're going to need an active sync combiner. So while you, you've already mentioned that you tried the, the HD15 Discart and the Power One from Retro Upgrades, 
those aren't going to work because those are probably both XNOR, well, the HG15 discard is definitely an XNOR sync combiner. I'm not sure about the other one. So you're going to need something like an Xtron box. The Xtron 203RXI is the one I would have recommended anyway. You said that has the best results, but the colors are still very off and the image itself is blurry. So that's all very weird. Um, and I've seen stuff like this with Sony PVMs versus just PC monitors, but it's weird because when you're outputting 640 by 480 to a PVM or BVM that could handle it, what you're essentially doing is sending the exact signal it's designed to accept, but you just have to combine sync the H and V in order to, to get comp uh, the composite sync to go through. And while that will get stuff like sync curl, I've also seen blurriness and other issues, and I just can't understand why. Um, it's not really something that I've dug too deep into because if unless you have no extra space whatsoever, hunting down a cheap PC VGA monitor, even a larger one, is super easy still for me. Uh, it takes It's not as easy as it was, but you could still find them for cheap, and you could find ones in great condition as well. So I just kept thinking, like, do I want to risk damaging my D32 to use a PC on it when I have a 20, where I have two 20-inch PC monitors sitting in a closet? So I just said, no, I'm going to just use the display that was designed to be used with that computer. But I don't know the answer to that. And I would love to know uh, what the reason is for it. Is it that the is it that Visa signals versus DTV because they should be mostly the same. You could try sending it 720 by 480 instead of 640 by 480, but I don't know. That's uh, you could try messing with it. But the, a D24 is a very very expensive monitor, and it's a beautiful monitor. So unless this was something that was really important, like you truly wanted to integrate this in your setup, if you mess around with it a little bit more and you can't get it looking okay, I would just stick with your PC monitor or, or get a bigger one. Uh, the color issue is definitely the strangest because that should be totally fine. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry I'm going to be totally useless for you on this one, but I've run into similar issues, and I just I just choose to use a PC monitor. Two kind of fun questions from Dustin Madison. First, what was my go-to hangover booze mop food? Um, where they live, it's pretty much the same all over that it would be biscuits and gravy. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I would get hangovers all the time worse than some of my friends. So I don't know if I just am more predisposed to hangovers or something, but uh, I guess whatever was easy because when I'm that hungover, I just don't want to move. So whatever was the absolute easiest. I do remember one time though, I was broke. I had just moved to an apartment in Stanford, Connecticut, and I was so hungover. I was walking distance of the bars down there. So one of the first days I was there, I hit it way too hard and then walked home without even a car key in my pocket. I just had my wallet, my cell phone, and one of one apartment key. I was so happy. Like, I hope a cop stops me. And of course they didn't because I was just walking, minding my business. And I got home and the next morning I was so hungover and it was like 11 o'clock and all I had in my house was Stouffer's mac and cheese. I was like, okay, I, I like this stuff. So I heated it up, you know, you put the flap, you know, you heat it up for a couple of minutes, you stir it, you heat it up again. And right when the microwave beeped, I picked it up out of the microwave and I smelled that wonderful, awful smell. I was like, oh, this is going to be so good. And then a, like a blast of hot steam hit me right in the thumb and burned my hand. And I dropped the mac and cheese and it fell all over the side of the stove and all over the floor. So I had to sit there brutally hungover 
just starving, smelling that awfully delicious Stover's mac and cheese and couldn't eat it because I had to clean it up out of every nook and cranny of the stove where it fell alongside, on the, fell on the floor. I wanted to cry. <laughs> so so not Stover's mac and cheese anymore after that. But that's about the only real, you know, next day hangover food story I could re- remember at the moment. Second, have I ever played a game that afterwards I felt awful doing so? No, never. I've I've played games where afterwards I was like, that was nothing at all like I expected. There were so many bugs in the game. It didn't Owlboy was like that for me. I was just like offended at the end of it. Like this game crashed more than it didn't. I didn't like the game. And I, maybe I didn't like the game as a result of that or something, but I don't know. That that was the one that stands in my first in my head of like afterwards going, ugh, but no, I never felt bad or felt about it. I was just like Eh, maybe that game wasn't for me or you know maybe one of my friends got it wrong or maybe my, one of my friends recommended it and I should do the opposite because we have different tastes in games which is totally fine as well by the way but yeah so got no story for you there but hopefully the, the mac and cheese story made you laugh a little next up Tim the gamer 23 said people talk about replacement shells for consoles and controllers all the time but do I know if anyone has made replacement shells for original power supplies They have a Genesis MK2103 with a broken screw mount, so half of it isn't too secure. No, I don't know if anybody has even looked into that, to be honest with you, and there are so many broken power supplies out there, meaning not usable, but in physical, still good condition, that I would consider looking for one of those. And to be honest, if you pop one of those open, you might just be able to replace the capacitor on it and get it running, but that's kind of the best way to do that, or just you know, save yours, put some tape around it, put some duct tape around it to keep it secure, maybe switch to a triad. But I don't think that's something that anybody has looked into. Uh, And getting an injection mold for something like that would be, I mean, it'd end up being a hundred bucks a case to replace them. And on top of that, I've, I've seen a lot of those Model 2 Genesis power supplies be slightly different from one another. So I don't think it would be possible for one shell to fit all of them. So while that was a good question, and I wish I had a better answer for you, I think that just duct tape that sucker back together and then go for a triad when the time is right. Or just go, you know, go to a retro game show or a retro game store, look for some broken ones and see if you could swap the guts or anything like that. Also, another question, what's the newest generation of retro consoles that we should expect to start needing recap soon? Um, that's a good question and not one that I've had too much experience with. I would assume that the external power adapter on the Xbox 360 will probably need replacement caps. And those capacitors on the PS3 um, that caused the uh, red light of death that people thought replacing or reballing it would have fixed it. I think that's one that's probably going to happen to all of them. I'm not really sure about the Wii, but those the Xbox 360 Wii and PS3 are certainly next up for consoles that might hit major failures. So I don't know. I think the console mods wiki has a lot of info on the Xbox 360. Uh, not sure about the problems on the other one, but that's a good question and something that hopefully somebody does a video on at some point. Tito, you up for that one? Next up, Jason Guffey recently had a coworker mention that their old NES looked like garbage on a modern flat screen over composite, and they didn't know why. Boy, howdy, were they able to educate and enlighten them in our ways. However, when it came to a good way to get composite onto their TV, they couldn't think of anything that would fit their needs. RetroTink 2X Pro, no doubt. It'll, it just works, and if they decide that they have a console other than the NES that they want to start connecting or, you know, or any of the other stuff that we use, that that's going to be a great option. Um, One thing you might want to do 
is the same thing a lot of brick and mortar game stores do and tell them that, hey, um, try this composite to HDMI converter. It's going to look almost as bad as directly into your TV. It's going to look laggy, but it's, I think they're still like 20 bucks. Try that and see. Is this, um, do you want a blast of nostalgia? So you hear the Mario Brothers soundtrack and you, you know, you, you run across the screen a couple times and you go, okay, that was fun. Then great. You only spent 20 bucks on it. But if you play it and you know, you start to feel like, I love this, but how come I can't make my jumps in later levels? How come I'm starting to get a headache after a while because of that flicker? Then you can upgrade to the better ones. But just always paint the correct picture. Like send them that video, the get a scaler video and have them watch it because, and even if they're not the type to enjoy something like that, it answers all of their questions. Because a very common thing from people is, wait a minute, you want me to spend over a hundred bucks to connect my NES? That's dumb. My TV has those inputs. You're trying to rip me off. No, that video explains exactly why and including goes into the whole TV manufacturers really screwed this one up. So it does seem like BS because it kind of is. The TV manufacturers really snubbed their nose at us back in starting in the early 2000s. So this shouldn't be a problem that we have to solve, but it is. So that's the point you need to get across to anybody interested. So I always try to make that point and then say, listen, here's your choices. If you really don't want to do any of this, try the cheap adapter, try leaving it right into your TV and see what you see where you go from there. But just know that if it sucks, it's not, or it's probably not the game and it's probably not the NES. It's probably the conversion. And that's the most important, the other most important point to make, because I've seen so many people leave the hobby because they bought one of those pound cables and go, ah, oh, this isn't the way I remembered it, but eh, this was fun, whatever. But what they were actually experiencing was that laggy, crappy pound cable. And the reason I hear these stories is because they, you know, they go about their lives. And at one point they mentioned to a friend what happened and their friend is like, well, what cable did you use? And then they dragged them back in and said, no, 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 you use the wrong cable, you use this. And now I meet those people at expos and they tell me that story. <coughs> so I guess I would just make those points and see if you could help. Well, that's it for this time. As usual, if you have any question at all, please just ask it wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post. And also, like you saw today, I just like scrolling through and answering them as if we were hanging out somewhere, having a coffee or a beer or something. And as always, every service can ask these questions. Very often, you only get the questions on Patreon, like you saw today, just because that's where most people support. But every support service, I treat the same. So anywhere you support, fire away your question, and I'll try my best to answer it. As always, though, thank you so much for everybody who supports in absolutely any way, even just listening to these and being part of this awesome community. So thank you all so much, and I will see you next week.